Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. It was September of 2007. A computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon named Randy Pausch delivered a lecture titled Achieving Your Childhood Dreams. Sounds like a good lecture, doesn't it? Learning how to achieve your childhood dreams. And this was a part, a lecture that was part of a series of lectures that was done at Carnegie Mellon called Journeys. Uh, somewhere in the faculty at that time, a few years before this, decided that they would start a lecture series called Journeys, where they would go to different professors and ask them to think about, think deeply about what matters most to them. Now, this doesn't have to be in their particular field of study. They could talk about anything they wanted to talk about, about what mattered most to them, about what was significant. To give what you might call a... That was a good one. <laughs> Acting like your dad today. So they wanted these professors to give a, what you would call a final talk, so to speak. Uh, the question was, what would you say if you had one last lecture to give to us? What matters most to you? And it didn't have to be biology or computer science or any other field. What just matters most to them? In one month... So Randy Pausch accepted this invitation at Carnegie Mellon to deliver his last lecture sometime in the summer. Well, one month prior to him giving his lecture, he was at the doctor and received the news that he had pancreatic cancer. And at the doctor, they told him he had three months to live. And in just one month, he was going to give this lecture. And in fact, it actually turned out to be his last lecture. And in the talk, Randy is playful and energetic. He's excited and happy. He shows enthusiasm for life, but he's also insightful and really reflective about life. You can just tell he's so passionate during his talk that there's almost a desperation in him for the crowd to really believe what he's saying and listen to his advice. And he comes to the close of this lecture about how to achieve your childhood dreams. And it's kind of cute. He talks about dreaming big and helping others and some lessons he's learned along the way. And he comes to the end and he says, uh, the last phrase there, he says, did you catch the head fake in my lecture? And everybody's listening and he says, well, the head fake was this really isn't about achieving your dreams. It's really about how you should live your life. And then he says, did you catch the second head fake? And he says, this lecture really wasn't for you. It was for my children. And he had decided when he received the news that he had three months to live and he was going to give this final lecture that he wanted to deliver a message to his children about everything he believed about how they should live their life. And so he put all of his energy into this, all of his excitement. He was happy. He was upbeat. He wanted his children to have the final words from him. He had three young children at this time excited about life and how to live. And he walks off after saying, this was for my children. And you're sort of left in just kind of a stunned silence. You see, he wanted a chance to tell his children final words on how to live. He wanted to convey a deep love for them, but he also wanted to express to them a pathway 
on how to live a joy-filled life. And that's really what all of his advice is about. It is clear in his final words that they all revolved around this goal. I want you, my children, to know my love, and I want you to live with joy. And here in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is kind of in a very similar situation. He is on his way to what he knows will be his inevitable death in Jerusalem. He's traveling, or I'm sorry, in Rome. And he comes and he meets the elders who are in Ephesus, and he has some final words for them. He meets with them. Now, Paul had spent probably two years of his life with them, spending time with them, establishing the church and preaching there. And he comes to these elders and he says, I've got some final words before I go. And here he's most certainly describing God's unquestionable love. And Paul wants to share with them in his final message, here's how you can have a blessed life. The last thing he's going to say to them is, don't forget, here's exactly how you live a happy, a blessed, a joy-filled life. Now, what he says is not exactly what you would expect out of sort of a religious presentation. He doesn't say um, things like, which I'm sure he thinks are important, but he doesn't say things like, ensure you say this many prayers per day or read this many minutes of God's word. He doesn't say things like, um, that have to do with the corporate gathering of the church. He doesn't get into all the nitty gritty of those details. He's written about all those significant things in other places. But here, bearing down on his last message, he says to them this one thing. I want you to make sure you remember Jesus' words. You are more blessed when you are a giver than when you are a taker. That doesn't mean that to receive things, you'll be miserable. It doesn't mean that you're not able to get things. That's not what that advice or that piece of word means. What it means is those who would become generous people, those people that, whose instinct is so developed and so shaped that they are givers, those are the people who live the best life possible. And that's what Paul and that's what God wants for them and that's what he wants for us. We're coming to my final word in this particular series on the, the series of generous. And we said from the very beginning that our goal is not just to make sure that you and I give more money. That's not the end objective. The goal is that you and I would actually develop a generous heart and generous hearts do give. But God wants us to become the kind of people that from the heart are generous. And Paul's final words are going to help us with that this morning as we close. The first thing he starts with is this. He starts with protection that we need. You notice there in verse 32, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Now, Paul is commending these elders and he's commending the church in Ephesus to God and to the word of grace. Now, this commending is not saying he's not saying I'm transferring you over to give you honor. That's not what he's talking about when he says commend. We well, can use commend one of two ways. You can say, I'm going to commend you. I'm going to honor you for something you've done. But the other way, and this is what Paul means is, I'm going to deposit you to somebody else for your protection. You need to be cared for. There's something dangerous that I'm concerned about. And so I'm going to commend you to the care of somebody else because I'm concerned for you. You need protection. And he knows that there is something that will get in the way of truly living with joy. Paul knows that there's something that can get in the way of the Christians in Ephesus living a blessed life. And he says, I'm going to commend you to God and the word of his grace. 
so that you can have joy. And what gets in our way is greed. That's what he's concerned about. You see, Jesus spoke about money often. In fact, Jesus spoke about money and greed more than he spoke about faith, prayer, heaven and hell in the Gospels. Jesus talked about money all the time. He was worried about it. He was concerned about it. He was concerned for us. He was concerned mainly because greed blinds us. You see, the problem of greed is dangerous and it's also incredibly difficult for us to see. It's a disease of the eye. It causes blindness for us. In fact, it makes us unable to see things that are incredibly important in our life. Greed is, for those of you who may not have a good, good definition or working definition, greed is excess concern for and worry about and love of and need for money and possessions. Because the basis of greed belief that money can give you everything you think you need and so what greed does is it makes you obsess over worry about love and treasure and grip and hold on tight to money because what you believe in greed is that money has the power and ability to give you everything that you think you need in this life that's why Jesus would say you cannot serve both God and money you either believe one or the other can give you all that you need in this life, but you can't serve both, God or money. And he's very, very concerned about this. So Jesus oftentimes says, be careful. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus would say to the brothers fighting over the inheritance, watch out, be very careful, meaning be alert. And I want you to be on guard, he says this, against all types of greed. You can't serve God in money, Jesus would say over and over. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, another place in scripture, has these kind of wise words for us when he says, whoever loves or trusts in money, whoever loves or trusts money, never has enough. Whoever loves or trusts wealth is never satisfied. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10. You see, the Bible's got a sense of wisdom for us, a, a truth that we need to understand that money promises things to us. It deceives us. It blinds us. It produces in us a greed that thinks that when we have money, we'll have everything taken care of, of all that we need. So I think if you and I believe Jesus, and I think if we believe scripture, it's a fair suggestion for us this morning to at least start with the assumption that you and I may have a problem with greed. And the difficult thing with greed is this. No one ever really thinks they struggle with it. You see, greed is different than a lot of different sins. Adultery, stealing, lying. There's a sense in which we know, like, no one's ever shocked, hey, this isn't my wife that I'm sleeping with. No one's ever shocked by that. But rarely do people just open up and say, man, I'm really struggling with greed. I don't know if I've actually ever heard that confession in my work in ministry. We just never think we have a problem with greed. And that's why we need, as Paul says, not just information about greed, but protection from greed. So what's the problem? The second thing that Paul says is the problem we have. Not just the protection we need, but our problem. What is it? Is money our problem? Does money make people greedy? Money doesn't make people greedy. Money is not the problem. Paul tells you in verse 33 what the problem is. He says in verse 33, <clears throat> excuse me. 
speaking of himself, I coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. Here's really the problem. Paul calls it the word coveting. You see, greed, uh, this excess desire for money, because we believe it'll give us what we need, produces, a, produces in us a covetousness, a coveting heart. And coveting is the insatiable hunger for what others have, born out of a dissatisfaction of what you don't have. Hunger is the inner drive to get what someone else has because you think that when you get that thing, you'll be okay. And so you begin to covet for what your neighbor has, to covet for what they have in their possession. Because you think, if I get what my neighbor has or I get what this person has, whether it's a salary or a house or a car or a spouse or a family or a job, if I get that thing, then I'll finally be satisfied. I'll finally be happy. And the problem is, coveting never solves that. You see, this is why Paul would tell us that coveting, when we covet things, that's really actually a problem of what he calls idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is the most talked about sin in the Bible. Idolatry is all over the place from beginning to the end. Idolatry is the sin that is most talked about, yet sometimes we sort of seem disconnected from understanding what it is. Usually when we talk about idolatry, what pops up into our mind is images of little statues. And some of you in this room have seen actual physical idols. You know, carved wooden images or cast metal images that people sit in their homes. And they attribute to that inanimate object certain qualities and characteristics like this wooden statue has the ability to bless me. The ability to give me things. The ability, the ability to do for me what I need it to do. And that's really the basis of all idolatry. When we assign to something that is not God, the ability to do for us what only God can do. Idolatry is making something other than God your actual functional God. You see, what each and every one of us need from God are the basic things like hope and joy and peace and mainly our identity, who we are. That's what we need from God. Tell us who we are. Tell us what to hope for. Tell us how to have joy. Give us peace, God. We believe that you're powerful to do this. And what we do is we take those desires for peace and joy and hope and that need for identity and we ask other things to give it to us. We ask our job to give it to us. We ask our family to give it to us. We ask our riches and our wealth, our possessions to give it to us. That is idolatry. Because we're asking those things to give us only what God can give us. You see, money in and of itself is actually not an idol. What money does is it reveals what your idols are. You see, what you have to do is for you to identify what your idols are, and this is not something I can do from the pulpit with you, but you have to do in your own private work with God and maybe in the counsel of some good uh, men or women in faith that can help you. To reveal your idol, what you have to do is not just look at your money, but look at the flow of your money. You see, there's a universal law about money. Money is always moving. That's why they call it currency. It's always moving. It's always flowing. And solving the money flow crisis in your life will change your life financially, by the way, side note. But the law of money is that it's always flowing. So it comes from a source. Some of you may have a job. And at that job, they flow money to you. And then from you... 
That money then flows to other places. It flows to your obligations. You have expenses to live, maybe debts to service, or you have um, maybe groceries to buy. So the money flows to you and it flows to your obligations. Money flows to you and it flows to your investments. What are you giving to to make sure you have some when you're older, right? That's what investments are. Money flows to you and it flows to things that you care about, like charities or benevolence. So when you give to the church or you give to a missionary or you give to um, some sort of work somewhere, when it flows, it flows to you and then from you. And money flows to us and it flows to things that are maybe our pleasures even or indulgences. Money is always flowing. And so here's your question. Where does your money most easily flow? Not how much, because if that were the case, my bills would be my idol, right? <laughs> because the majority of my money flows to me and then it goes to my bills. And so I can say, well, my bills are my idol. That's not necessarily true. Where does your money, because I don't actually enjoy paying my bills. It doesn't flow easily there. Where does your money, when it comes to you, flow most naturally? When you look into that, you'll start to get at least get some hints about where your idols might be. Let me try to explain this quickly with an example. Um, Lisa and I give. We give to the church here um, when we are paid. We give uh, to a couple missionary friends that we have that are in the mission field. Lisa and I give um, with some of our money. But it is actually something that is hard to do sometimes. It's gotten easier over the years, but I acknowledge without a doubt that giving to benevolent things like the church or missionaries still takes work. For example, I can spend money 10 times in 10 different places in my mind before I ever think about a benevolent work I could do with my money. So tax return is, tax season's up and I got a tax return this year. And let me tell you what I do with my tax return. There's about 15 different things that I think about doing with it um, you know, all the time we could take a trip or we could pay this bill or we could put it in this investment. I think about things, right? It can flow to places and it takes work to pause to say, could this money flow somewhere else? Maybe in a benevolent sense. For me, I can tell you this. I'll share openly with you about my own life. Um, I have never seen or found a book that I'm not willing to buy. I love books. I love to read. If you go in my office, I need probably two more bookcases. They're just stacked on my wall right now. And I love books. And in a sense, there's a good nature behind that because I love to read and I love to learn. But there's a danger for me with books. You see, my identity, I'm a preacher, I'm a teacher, and my money flows easily towards books because there's a sense in which I also want to be seen as someone who knows things. Someone you can trust, someone who has information. And so my identity can be in things like my books. And it flows so easily to my books because books can be my idol. Really, um, it reveals my idol. So I can't diagnose for you, but what I can do is give you some um, categories to think about. Because books aren't really the problem. Books can be good, books can be bad. The problem is what we do underneath those books. Let me give you a few root idols to think about that you can consider for your own life. There are four basic ones. The first root idol that people have in their life is power. Your money can flow to things that give you power, which would be like recognition amongst people. I want people to see me as powerful and able. Or maybe you use your money to influence other people. So in relationships, maybe you give money to people so they're always dependent upon you. That's an idol of power. I want to be in control. Maybe you have the idol of uh, control. That's thing, longing for things to always go according to your plan. 
And so you might not spend a dime. You might say, hey, I'm not greedy. I don't spend a lot of money. But do you hoard your money? Because you want to make sure that everything goes according to your plan and make sure you have everything you need and you have all kinds of security. That could be an idol. Another idol would be comfort. Does your money most flow to things of pleasure? Maybe you spend enormous amounts of money on vacations and eating out and you don't save a dime for retirement and don't give to the church. Maybe you have an idol of comfort. And one that we always, a lot of people struggle with is the idol of approval. And this is mine is self-confessing, is the idol of approval. So we use our money to gain acceptance. Maybe we spend it so that people are impressed with us and they like us. Or maybe we hold it so that we can have enough money to buy ourselves into certain communities and places where people think we have money. Whatever it may be, here are the four root idols that people struggle with. Power, control, comfort, and approval. And look where your money flows. And ask yourself, am I trying to buy one of these things? Or maybe more than one. You see, whatever you and I turn to for self-worth or security or approval or comfort is our idol. And here's the problem with idols. Whatever your idol is, it will demand from you your entire life. You will have to give your idol everything, all of your money, all of your time, all of your energy, all of your thoughts. And this is why when we have idols still in our life, our heart remains restless, discontent. Because it's not yet satisfied, because these idols promise to give us these things and never eventually end up giving us them. We're restless. That's why Augustine said, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. So what's the power to change? How are we going to do this? What is the answer to this problem of idolatry that makes us flow our money to things that are trying to buy what only God can give us? How do we become givers? Now, there's some options. The first option is I could tell you today, you better give or God is going to get you in eternity. I could do that to you today. I could week after week sort of threaten you and tell you that if you don't give, God is going to eventually get you. And if I did that, I'd be working on your will. I'd be trying to bend your will to give. Or we could stand up here and I could show you pictures like Sarah McLaughlin does and play the music in the background of like hurting, you know, children or hurting like animals. You know what I'm talking about, that commercial? I could do that. I could make you feel really, really bad for some people in really bad circumstances. And if I did that, I'd be working on your emotions. Or I could stand up and say, hey, listen, giving to the church is the most economically efficient way For us to save souls, the cost per saving soul is X dollars. And so it's the most efficient way for you to do it. And I could try to convince you to give that way. But if I did that, I'd be working on your mind. But all three of these, working on your will, your emotions and your mind, fall short of actually changing your heart. You see, Paul says in 32, verse 32, I commend you to God and the word of grace. Meaning, I entrust you to the protection of God and the word of grace. You know what grace is, right? G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. And the word of grace can do two things for us, he says in verse 32. The first thing it can do is it can make you strong. He says grace, the word of grace, is able to build you up. It's able to stabilize you. When you know the word of grace, what God has done for you at the expense of Jesus Christ, what you have in Jesus, 
at the great expense of what he went to for you. When you know that, it stabilizes you. It gives you strength. It builds you up. It gives you resistance to the whispering promises of your idols that never deliver. It builds you up. But grace also not just makes you strong, but it makes you rich. It makes you really, really rich. He says in verse 32 that the word of grace is able to build you up and give you inheritance among those who are being sanctified. A kind of wealth that is unheard of. The word of grace is speaking about a wealth that no one else can speak about. It speaks about an eternal inheritance that you and I someday will be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That is the sacrifice of Jesus if you put this thing together. That he had all things. He was the wealthiest of all, living in heaven with his father, and he came to earth to make us joint heirs with him. And you will share in all things with Jesus Christ if you're in him. You see, the problem with idols or treasures, you might say, is this. That every other treasure, every other idol, other than Jesus Christ, demands that you die for them. But Jesus is the only treasure that says, I'll die for you. And in Jesus Christ, every idol is destroyed. The idol of power. In Jesus Christ, you now have the power of God in you. You no longer need human power, human influence. You have God's power. Do God's work. If you have the idol of control in Jesus Christ, you get the sweet surrender to his ultimate control. If you have the idol of comfort in Jesus Christ, you get the greatest comfort the human heart has ever longed for, and that is eternal love from him. If you have the idol of approval, you just want people to like you and to say you're worth something. In Jesus Christ, you get the very words of God when he says he looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. The kind of approval that no human being can ever give you. You see, his power is greater, his control is perfect, his comfort is satisfying, and his approval is eternal. And once you have this in the word of grace, all of a sudden your heart is satisfied and your hands become generous. You won't become generous the way that God wants you to be generous without the word of grace melting your heart before God. And I want to encourage every single one of you in here to think seriously about the word of grace. Reflect on it daily. Constantly reflect on the idols you have and how Jesus Christ solves those for you. The kind of love that he went to for you. Just imagine for a moment, learning how to treasure Jesus. He had everything you could ever imagine. The wealthiest being in the world, right? In heaven with his father, perfectly living. What was he missing? The only thing he was missing was us. And he gave all of that up. To come to earth so that he could have us with him. And when you see that you and I are the treasure of Jesus Christ, the pearl of great price that he would give all to have, suddenly he'll become your treasure. He'll become your savior. And when he is, your heart will be transformed into becoming generous. And things will no longer be necessary that you have to have, but just nice and just regular. But our heart will be enthralled with the love of God to become generous people the way that God designed us to be. So let's be generous people, transformed by the word of grace. And if you're not transformed, maybe you don't really know or appreciate the word of grace. We're always here to help you make more sense of that. Let's stand and sing this song. If you have a need, you can come.